0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show... We're not going away. Scott Ritter banned from YouTube. The renowned deep state investigators show is dismantled and disappeared for daring to present other than U.S. state and media controlled insights. The former U.N. weapons inspector charged by YouTube with hate speech for apparently being anti-war and anti-nuclear war, which landed Ritter a likewise spot on Ukraine's hit list, a site oddly bragging as their headquarters address as the CIA in Langley, Virginia. And now Ritter's rebuttal, his show asked the Inspector, with Citizen Jeff banished from YouTube as well.
1: Have there been any attempts by Big Tech or the government to censor your
2: views about Ukraine? Yes, yes, yes. I'm here to make a, a, a brief statement about um, some developments that have happened. Um, YouTube has uh, deplatformed the Scott Ritter show. Uh, for those of you who aren't a, are unaware of what the Scott Ritter show was. It was a a collaboration between myself and uh, Sylva Live, a uh, very popular, some would say controversial, uh, Russian uh, media outlet. Uh, but you know, controversy, if it's informing you, if it's uh, if it's you know provoking uh, thinking, if it challenges um, you know mainstream narrative, is is, is never bad. Uh, we were deplatformed because of hate speech. I can tell you as somebody who was intimately involved in this program, there was no hate speech whatsoever. Um, This was a program designed to bring Russian voices to a Western audience. Simply. That's all it was designed to do. And it was succeeding. You know, uh, Western media outlets, uh, The Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, uh, they, they can all interview, for instance, Ukrainian battalion commanders. But if I interview a a Russian battalion commander, it's hate speech. They can interview Ukrainian politicians and bring you the Ukrainian point of view. But if I interview a Russian politician, hate speech. The same thing with Ukrainian academics, intellectuals who explain, you know, the, 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 the position of Ukraine in great detail. But if I bring on Russian politicians, Russian academics, Russian intellectuals, it's hate speech. It's not hate speech. What's hateful is being deplatformed for daring to challenge the mainstream narrative. And that's what the Scott Ritter show was all about, about putting out information that the viewer wasn't going to get from anywhere else. And that's the point. You see, there's a disease in the West. It's Russophobia, and it's a disease that feeds off of ignorance, the ignorance of The Western audience and from this ignorance fear is generated and this fear is exploited by the by the political powers that be to support policies such as blind allegiance to Ukraine, accepting without challenge the need to funnel hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars to Ukraine without question, without accountability. Um, The Scott Ritter show put out a narrative that uh, challenged the thinking behind these policies and they can't have that. So they canceled us. Um, we're not going away. My understanding is that we're going to find a way to continue this collaboration, to continue this service of providing um, an outlet for Russian voices to be heard by an American audience, by the Western audience. We'll just find a different platform. Again, I'm, I'm sorry this happened, but this, this is the case and I'll, I'll leave it with this. Um, and, and I say this for everybody who's on YouTube. Understand that YouTube's job is not to provide a vehicle for you to inform your audience. YouTube's job is to control the message that you think you want to get to your audience. By placing restrictions on the content that you can post, by creating boundaries for, you know, what you can say, they own you, they control you. And by linking these restrictions to monetization that many people find attractive, what you've done is you've sold out. And so I say this to everybody that's operating on YouTube. Beware. You think you're in charge of your content. You're not. Because in order to stay on YouTube, you have to make a lot of compromises that you normally wouldn't make. But you have to make because you've sold out for the money, you've sold out for the influence. Don't sell out for those things. Embrace integrity, embrace true journalism, embrace the notion that your voice uncensored, unaltered is the most important thing you can contribute to any debate, and we'll be seeing you soon on the Scott Ritter show.
0: This is arts express and coming up next the idea of diversity and trying to make it possible for us to look with a different landscape one that is racially inclusive that's a big part of my journey as a comedian and what i want to bring forth korean american stand-up comic performer and actress margaret cho phones in talking about her latest comedy tour and cho sums up about herself i see somebody I see a beautiful woman who has been through everything, to hell and back, and I show my scars proudly. First, a little of her vintage stand-up, then Margaret Cho.
3: And I just hope people vote. I just want everybody to vote, and, you know, not that voters make the best decisions. I mean, people in California voted for Arnold Schwarzenegger because they think he's from the future, so... (laughs) Schwarzenegger actually said, we need to block our borders, keep the foreigners out. (laughs) Oh, now that you're in, f*** everybody else. (laughs) I get it. I just hate this whole illegal immigration debate. It's just racist. I mean, California is Mexico. So have some respect. Okay? It's just weird. Like, if you're not a Native American, you are some kind of illegal alien. That's that's what you are. If your family came over on the Mayflower, well, that makes you a wetback. The whole illegal immigration thing, it's just a way to be racist against Mexicans. That's all it is. That's all it is, because nobody's trying to build a wall between America and Canada. Seriously, nobody's standing at the border like, keep your maple syrup to yourself! Your bacon sucks! Trying to hurl Anne Murray CDs back over the wall. Hi.
4: Hi.
0: Hello. Hi, and welcome to our show.
4: Hi, thank you.
0: What can you say about what's in store with Live and Livid and what is the description of your show all about? Quote, the fight to stay alive in a culture that is killing us daily. And why Livid?
4: Well, I am uh, excited to be on tour again, so that's the live part. And Livid is has it's a time for really being outraged about the lack of women's rights, the lack of uh, body autonomy for people who have uteruses. This is a very big problem. There's a huge problem with, um, there's so much real fury that I have for the loss of our rights and my rights as a queer Asian American woman. So it's really, a, a terrible time, and so it's a good time to be livid about it.
0: And what is the description of your show all about quote the fight to stay alive in a culture that is killing us daily
4: well it's true there's um you know murders happening to people provoking at the gas station for uh you know this is like a a beautiful art form that somehow worthy of murder worthy of death it's so upsetting um so The way that uh, we're, like, seeing this rise in violence against Asian Americans, violence against women, you know, it's like a very horrifying thing to watch and see happen and not do anything about it. What, what, What we have to do is fight it.
0: And I wanted to commend you for not talking about your film work during the strikes. So what are your thoughts about the ongoing strikes, both professionally and personally?
4: It's so important to really stand up for our rights. I think people forget that workers are the most important part of this equation, that we have the power. We always have the power. And to remember that, and the strike, you know, is really inspiring also with the incredible solidarity with the Writers Guild and IOPC. We have um, such a huge influence on the way this is going to go forward. And, you know, we, we have each other and this is really powerful. And I'm out there on the picket lines. And it's also great to be able to see people that we know uh, that we haven't seen for a while. So it's a, a fun thing socially as well as important for our cause.
0: And what do you feel can be done to resolve the strikes and prevail against the movie companies?
4: Well, it's just very basic to give us the basic needs that we we can to make a working living wage in our profession, and that is very little to ask I think it's also very little to ask for the right to our own image um which is so basic like we should have the right to our own face and body if we're going to be on like on the street whether whatever part that is you know and that's um something that needs to be negotiated every time it happens not once in for which is uh ludicrous so we're asking for very basic stuff and i think it should be given very easily but it's obviously a fight
0: and how do you go about creating comedy out of the troubling world today
4: i think it's about yeah it's about seeing what is valuable about the moment seeing what is um really happening underneath the bias and underneath kind of like the our, even our own opinions about what it is and trying to dismantle it all. I think it's really the, the effect of comedy is uh, almost an, an x-ray to see what's going on underneath. That's what my hope is.
0: Now, one of the big issues of the strike is using AI images of actors and not paying them for that. What are your thoughts about an AI image of you? That could end up on the screen.
4: I don't know. I I know that it, it's really the problem with it is that it removes any kind of uh, uh, agency of what I might have, like my voice saying what my my mouth is saying. You know, that's the problem. Is that when you get into this territory where people can harness your your likeness and use that. They're, they're not using uh, also the intellectual capacity that comes with it. They're just using the image and the voice and, and um, the equation of all of the things that you said prior to that, you know, but it doesn't have that humanity, which I think is really disturbing. So I have a lot to say about that as an artist who's sort of worked in a very human field. I, I, I yeah. reject the possibility of having something exist outside of my control.
0: Your company has also been described in part as you're taking on, quote, activism and asian and all about the politics of disgust. Please elaborate.
4: Well, it's um, having to explain my own presence as an artist to um, audiences that were not uh, um, understanding of that, you know, not not aware of that and hadn't had any prior knowledge of that because, We hadn't seen Asian-Americans really meaningfully in media in the 80s or or 90s, really. And so to kind of emerge as an artist working, talking about experience through that time, I think, was having to sort of explain my existence, explain where I came from and why I was there and what I was doing.
0: And when Margaret Cho looks in the mirror, what does she see?
4: I see... um, a relatively well preserved middle aged <laughs> woman, and also an artist, and um, somebody who has been through a lot. I see a cat and dog mom, um, and I see a friend. Okay.
0: And any last word on live and livid? And anything to add about what you have in store to surprise audiences with your new show?
4: I'm really really excited to go out and perform again. I'm thrilled that I get to do it in uh, the way that I got to do before the pandemic. So now I'm sort of reaching this time of, I wouldn't say normalcy, but it's definitely uh, back, live performance is back, and so I'm grateful to be part of it. I think that it's just um, that I really love doing this and that I, I have uh, been doing this for 40 years, and so this show celebrates that, which I think is a very long time, but it also, in a way, it isn't. So I'm glad to be out there doing it.
0: Okay, well thank you so much Margaret Show for joining us on the show.
4: Wonderful, thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: And more information about Margaret Show's National Comedy Tour Live and Livid is online at margaretshow.com. And now in the Arts Express screening room, move over Oppenheimer, director Jane Loader in a conversation about her 1982 devastating documentary the Atomic Café, as timely today as ever. A darkly humorous collage of government propaganda, alarming misinformation about nuclear war.
5: Boom. something exploded down inside. And Roy's tears up in my eyes, oh yes, I have that funny feeling, I guess, it's my atomic love for you. Our artillery and our tactical air force in the Pacific are now equipped at this moment with atomic explosives, which can and will be used on military targets with precision and effectiveness.
1: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Back in 1982, saw the release of one of the darkest, most horrific, and yes, funniest documentaries ever made. I'm talking about the film, The Atomic Cafe, which was a head spinning stew of actual atomic age propaganda of the forties, fifties and beyond crafted from government-produced educational and training films, newsreels, advertisements. The film exposed the vast propaganda machine that the U.S. state uses to deceive and market its insane atomic policies. Now it's in re-release, and I think more relevant than ever. And I'm very happy to be speaking today with one of the original directors of the Atomic Cafe, Jane Loader. Hi, Jane.
6: Hi, Jack. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Jane, for someone who hasn't seen it yet, how would you describe The Atomic Café and and where does the title come from?
6: The title comes from a shot of a bar called The Atomic Café that is in Arco, Idaho. Of course, now there are atomic cafes all over the world. And the movie I would describe as a, a collage of propaganda, music, all about the atomic bomb. And there's No narration. There's no uh, voice of God. It's all put together to uh, make a point just through the editing.
1: How did the film come about in the year 1982?
6: Well, it actually started in 1976. We released Uh it in 1982, but it started out with my partner Pierce Rafferty, who found a book, a a pamphlet of like 9,000 U.S. government films. And he started going through it and saying, "Wow, you know, this is interesting. I've never heard of these things before." So he and his brother, the late Kevin Rafferty, um, moved to Washington D.C. to try to look at some of these propaganda films in the archives. And I came on board about six months later, in early seventy-seven. And it was only after we started looking at hundreds of films produced by the government that we zeroed in on a, the atomic issue.
1: Well, when I was watching the film this time, so many of the segments struck me as absurd Saturday Night Live type sketches that I thought maybe you had recreated some of them in the studio. Was all of that footage used actually from government and TV and news film stock of the time?
6: Yes, yeah, so it was. we didn't recreate anything. These poor boys will shed their innocent blood in a war that this
5: country is provoking. Get a load of that. Asiatic people all want the peaceful establishment of native regimes without the interference of United States troops. Only communist countries can guarantee you peace. Why don't you go live in a communist country then? you blow your top on a street corner there, you look pretty well off, sister, to be tearing down the country that gives you freedom of speech. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth, but some folks don't appreciate this land that gave them birth. I hear that up in Washington, they're having an awful fuss, cause communists and spies are making monkeys out of us.
1: You juxtapose propaganda clips with other video and audio that kind of contradicts it. Could you talk a little yeah. bit more about the, the form of the film?
6: Yes, we did juxtapose real footage with propaganda. And you can see it, especially in like the segment where uh, the soldiers are going to the atomic bomb test and you see them being oriented by this guy who tells them not to worry. There's not going to be any danger to charging into the mushroom cloud. And then you see, of course, (laughs) the real footage of the men coming up out of their foxholes after the bomb goes off and charging straight into the mushroom cloud. So that's the kind of thing we tried to do throughout the movie to juxtapose real events with propaganda.
5: You are here to participate in an atomic maneuver. This is not a haphazard maneuver. Careful planning for it started months back. Watched from a safe distance, this explosion is one of the most beautiful sights ever seen by man. You're probably saying, so it's beautiful. What makes it so dangerous? Basically, there are only three things to think about. Blast, heat, and radiation. Radiation. This is the one new effect obtained by the use of an atomic weapon. Truthfully, It's the least important of the three effects, as far as the soldier on the ground is concerned. You can't see radiation, feel it, smell it, or taste it. Film badges and dosimeters issued to you enable the radiological safety monitor in your unit to read the amount of your exposure. The radiation level may be high, but if you follow orders, you'll be moved out in time to avoid sickness. Finally, if you receive enough gamma radiation to cause sterility or severe sickness, you'll be killed by blast, flying debris, or heat anyway. Well, that's the story. Don't worry about yourselves. As far as the test is concerned, you'll be okay.
1: It's hard to know whether to laugh or cry at some of this. Some of it is so ridiculous, and yet people still repeat the same lying talking points. It's kind of remarkable, for example, that people will still claim that the dropping of the A bomb saved millions of American lives.
6: Yes. And, you know, we know some of those people. And we have, in fact, when we had our opening night in New York City, my partner's uncle, who was at the screening, and he was so mad at us because he thought that the atomic bomb being dropped on Japan saved his life, so um he thought we had done a bad a bad thing
1: even though Eisenhower, who we think might know something about that, had admitted that the bomb wasn't necessary at all, that the Japanese were about to surrender
6: and historians often argue that even if the Hiroshima bomb was necessary. The Nagasaki bomb was definitely not, that that was um, just to uh, frighten the Soviet Union and keep them uh, from invading, coming down and trying to take over in that area of the world.
5: Captain Behan, what was your most outstanding experience on this historic flight? I suppose it was when the clouds opened up over the target at Nakisaki, target was there, pretty as a picture. I made the run, let the bomb go. That was my greatest thrill.
6: A lot of the men who were involved in the project were, you know, they were very innocent and uh, I don't think they really realized how different it was to drop a, an, an atomic bomb than it was just to drop a bomb, which they were used to doing and they'd been doing, you know, for years.
1: You juxtapose a clip like that with the the horrible images of the actual charred bodies of bombed victims.
6: Yes, um, you, you really get to see some of the reality, though we did not use the most shocking footage that is out there. Um, you know, there were hours and hours and hours of footage of the Uh, the people of Japan, and the effects of the atomic bomb, you know, not just on their homes, but on their bodies.
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, if there's worse than what you showed in the film, I I would really have to avert my eyes. It was really difficult. Exactly. We didn't
6: want people to avert their eyes. We wanted them to, you know, watch the movie. So that's why we pulled our punches a, a bit on that.
1: Some of the most disturbing footage, actually, to me, concerned the fourth atomic bomb explosion in the 1950s on the little atoll of Bikini. Now, Bikini wasn't exactly uninhabited, was it?
6: Exactly. It was uh, an inhabited island, and the United States convinced the people of Bikini that they were not going to have any ill effects from the island. And so when you see them getting on the boat and uh, singing You Are My Sunshine as they're sailing away to another atoll where where they're going to end up living for decades because their own place is too contaminated. You know, it's pretty horrifying because they were very innocent and uh, trusting.
5: And thus the natives express to the people of the United States their welcome. Despite the fact that the atoll of Bikini may be utterly destroyed, come July the 1st. But to the natives, in their simplicity and their pleasantness and their courtesy, they're more than willing to cooperate. Although they don't understand the world of nuclear energy any more than we do. And though they have no way of understanding what the test is all about.
6: Later, it was in the late 70s, the Bikini Islanders did finally get some compensation from the United States government for these years of being exiled from their island and forced to live on US government rations instead of the fish that they used to eat oh. because they couldn't fish anymore because the lagoon oh was too contaminated. They had a very tough time of it.
1: I'm gonna ask a question, maybe it has no answer or maybe it does have a simple answer. Why did the government lie over and over and over again about the effects of the bomb?
6: I think there are several reasons. One is that they didn't want the American public to be afraid, and they wanted people to not worry. They wanted wanted a happy, you know, citizenry. And as the movie shows, they didn't just lie to the Bikini Islanders, they lied to People near the t- test sites in the United States, in Nevada, in New Mexico, Utah, St. George, Utah is a big uh, site of contamination. So they wanted people to just close their windows and go on about their daily life and not think what was going on nearby.
5: Risk is part of the pattern of daily routine.
6: Uh.
5: Some of the falsehoods circulated about radiation effects are trivial, but upsetting. And will eventually result in a race of bald-headed people. Imagine yourself with no hair. And that's not all radioactivity will do. It will... Enough exposure to radiation will cause loss of hair. The treatment, if you'd insist, would be symptomatic. A toupee but the condition would only be temporary. Your hair would come back, same color, same cowling, which puts the finger squarely upon one of the major fallacies in the public attitude toward atomic weapons. It's the fallacy of devoting 85% of one's worrying capacity to an agent that constitutes only about 15% of an atomic bomb's destroying potential. And that's unsound, doesn't fit.
6: And every time I drop a piece of soap in the shower, I think about in Atomic Cafe, and he's risking his life every time he goes into the shower. I'm no communist, and I'll tell you that right now.
5: I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, and I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own.
1: And you've been listening to part one of our interview with Jane Loader, one of the directors of the classic documentary about nuclear madness, Atomic Cafe. Tune in next week for part two when we talk about fallout shelters, duck and cover, and an incredible eyewitness account of the murders of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
5: Just begin. I'm Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues, and I want to give a big shout out to the listeners of Arts Express. Lots of love to you. I love Tuesday afternoon. My mind was elsewhere, very a lot of the time, you know, chemically, mystically, and emotionally. But yeah, pretty much that's what happened. That's what that's what happened. And um, yeah, I love Tuesday afternoon. It's all in the music. But I, I think the best way to influence the world. is try and make the world a better place through music. That's my purpose.
0: and we'll go out now on the show with Arts Express correspondent Brett Gregory at our UK desk, delving into the controversial subject of biological destiny as manifested in the aging women in British film, or perhaps their absence with connections to Euripides, Aristophanes, Freud, Orwell, and Simone de Beauvoir.
7: nonsense stop I beg your pardon and I've been kept here against my will for nearly six hours I'm sorry madam but there's very little we can do about it. and why on earth not it's no good thinking negatively about things negative thought can do nothing positive thought can do anything now what about that contrivance you invented during the war Uh, I'm sorry madam I I... that uh, uh, Pluto thingamere you burnt away the fog with something or other oh you mean Fido Well, Pluto Fido Jumbo it did away with fog didn't it Yes, madam. Uh, That was was Churchill. A positive thinker. You could do with a Churchill at this airport. Get Fido working at once. Fido will soon be working. Well, I'm afraid we don't use it in peacetime, madam. It's a little too costly. Too costly? And do you know what six hours here has cost me already? Apart from four cups of tea at the disgraceful price... If you go and talk to the receptionist, I'm sure she can arrange some sort of uh, transport for you to London. But I don't want to go to London. I want to go to Dublin. They'll fix everything at the reception counter, madam. And don't call me madam. Miss,
8: do I look like a madam? Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. What follows is my review of Spinsters, Widows and Chars The Ageing Woman in British Film by Claire Mortimer, published by Edinburgh University Press, 2023. Claire Mortimer's meritorious academic monograph explores the various incarnations of female ageing which emerged out of British cinema between the 1940s and the 1970s, such as The Spinster, The Blue Stocking, The Battle Axe, The Widow and The Witch. Moreover, by way of her unique eye for detail, far-reaching research and excellent prose, the author investigates how such representations of womanhood and femininity have simultaneously reflected and informed the norms and values, hopes and fears anxieties and expectations of wider British society and culture all the way into the 21st century. Traditionally, folk culture and popular culture have both propagated the pernicious supposition that an older woman who is beyond childbearing age is an unwelcome guest, undesirable and uninteresting, marginalised and stigmatised, fated to a half-life of misery, bitterness and isolation as an old biddy, an old crone, or an old hag. Indeed, in her book Out of Time from 2013, Lynn Siegel highlights that as far back as the writings of both Euripides and Aristophanes, the elderly were portrayed as stock figures of ridicule, with old women regarded as helpless and pitiable, if not ridiculous. In turn, Sigmund Freud somewhat demonised middle-aged women in 1913 by stating that they often alter strangely in character after they have abandoned their genital function and become quarrelsome, vexatious and overbearing, petty and stingy. Additionally, the author cites Simone de Beauvoir's groundbreaking work from 1949, The Second Sex, wherein it is observed bleakly that menopause is a mutilation and the loss of fertility removes a woman's justification for her existence and her opportunity for happiness. Against this backdrop of mortality and misrepresentation, it is refreshing that, in response, Mortimer chooses to swing her critical spotlight into a corner of British light entertainment where such epochal prejudices would probably be met with either a frantic flutter of an oversized folding fan or a raucous rendition of Knees Up Mother Brown. The historical roots of the supporting comedy actress in British cinema are intertwined with the immediacy, physicality and vicariousness of the theatre and the music hall. And it is here where a great number of middle and working class performers first found their feet before famously leaping or barging their way onto the silver screen. Joyce Grenfell, Irene Handel, Hattie Jakes, Peggy Mount, Beryl Reid and Margaret Rutherford, to name but a few. As the author explains, the mature actress tends to have already established their performing career elsewhere as was the case with many comedy actresses in the mid-20th century. These established actresses were often cast in supporting roles, playing character parts under less experienced, younger stars, lending a sense of quality to the production. Significantly, Judith Roof suggests in All About Thelma and Eve from 2002 that if one pays close attention, such seemingly minor characters can be seen to perform a radical narrative function that is akin to that of the Shakespearean fool by way of their inappropriate behaviour and humour, i.e. as potential agents of chaos, they have the capabilities to temporarily overwhelm the patriarchal status quo and breathe life into age, womanhood and otherness. For example, as Mortimer scrutinises both major and minor British films released during World War II, she marks how the unruly and working class Elsie and Doris Waters, 49 and 43 years old respectively, care little about men, the military or mortality in Gert and Daisy's Weekend in 1942. Instead, the Singing Sisters transgress established codes of conduct by capitalising on the mythology of Cockney wartime resilience, entertaining those sheltering from the Blitz with spirited comedy routines and ditties about being an underdog while dressed in scruffy, ill-fitting garb. Moreover, in the Laurence Olivier star vehicle, this demi-paradise from 1943, the ebullient eccentricities of the battle axe Mrs Flannel, played by 40-year-old Evelyn Gregg, the benevolent Rowena Ventor, played by 51-year-old Margaret Rutherford, and the bubbly Sybil Paulson, played by 33-year-old Joyce Grenfell, are presented, the author argues, as the essence of the spirit of England, binding the community together and making it stronger to face its enemies. This tradition of women being adopted by society, culture and politics to embody the nation during wartime is exemplified by George Orwell's striking description of the middle-class spinster as an old maid cycling to Holy Communion through the mists of the autumn morning in his 1941 essay, The Lion and the Unicorn. Although this image may seem on the surface somewhat pleasant and even humorous, billowing beneath it are quintessential nationalistic notions such as social class, civility, duty, order and potential. For example, in the propaganda film Went the Day Well from 1942, German paratroopers, disguised as British royal engineers, occupy an idyllic rural village in England called Bramley End. At first, the wealthy widow of the manor, Mrs Fraser, played by 52-year-old Marie Law, welcomes the invaders with open arms, inviting them to dinner and blithely ignoring the suspicions of her fellow villagers. By the end of the film, however, During a battle between the German aggressors and British soldiers, Mrs Fraser martyrs herself by grappling with a grenade which was intended for a group of children who were under her charge. The subtext here is clear. While the widow or spinster may be unable to fulfil her biological destiny and have children herself, she can at least serve and save the children of others instead in the interest of the local community and the nation at large. Without doubt, however, this post-war ideation of a childless spinster or widow giving her all to rescue the nation from foreign or domestic threats peaked in 1955 when the 76-year-old Katie Johnson was cast as the unforgettable Mrs. Wilberforce in The Lady Killers. In many ways, her role in this gothic comedy is reminiscent of a fairy godmother, in that her otherworldly old-fashioned house and habits, her reticence and resolve are preternaturally impervious to the malevolent machinations of Alec Guinness's gang of criminal patriarchs. In turn, her stiff upper lip can be seen to be a life-affirming antithesis to, say, Martita Hunt's sneering performance nine years earlier as the willful and withered witch Miss Havisham in great expectations. Moving on, and we learn that, from its origins in the mid-18th century, blue-stocking was a term used to describe independent middle or upper-class women who pursued intellectual and literary interests. This moniker was not proffered as a compliment, however, particularly from within male social circles, but instead was employed to deride such women as eccentric, unsexed, and unnatural. Nevertheless, as Virginia Nicholson notes in singled out from two thousand and eight, one of the consequences of the casualty rate of the First World War was that there was greater need for middle class women to establish a professional identity as an alternative to marriage. Thus, there was a steady increase in the number of women entering higher education in the interwar period, with academia offering a haven for the ambitious and educated spinster. In turn, alongside nursing, Mortimer draws our attention to the fact that, over these decades, the conventional career path for a middle-class spinster was the teaching profession. This said, however, the proposition of an independent, educated and aspirational single woman being in direct competition with her male counterparts for financial and cultural capital did not sit comfortably in the popular imagination at the time, and, as a result, it was regarded with suspicion and distrust. Indeed, Alison Oram's PhD research in 1996 into the portrayal of unmarried female teachers between 1900 and 1939 discovered that they were generally regarded as either an unfulfilled celibate, a predatory lesbian, or as a militant feminist man-hater. Consequently, the spinster teacher began to be misreported in post-war British cinema as a dysfunctional and ineffective figure whose school is dangerously cut off from the rest of the world. This is most apparent in the first two of the St Trinian series of films, The Bells of St Trinian's from 1954 and Blue Murder at St Trinian's in 1957 wherein an hysterical and hedonistic free-for-all at an all-girls boarding school comically confirms the fears and anxieties of the British establishment. To make matters radically worse, or better, depending on your point of view, the pupils' illicit exploits are instigated by the grotesque queerness displayed by the school's frumpy headmistress, Miss Fritton, played with aplomb by the 50-something Alastair Sim in drag. The author reminds us that fears about progressive society and the need to protect the morals of the young continued apace during the swinging 60s when, amongst many other indelible events, obscenity trials were launched against, for example, D. H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover in 1960, the art exhibition Lovers and Romances by Stas Paraskos in 1966 and the infamous School Kids issue of Oz magazine in 1971. It should be noted here, however, that 15 of the highly popular carry-on films were also produced and released throughout this decade. Their salacious schoolboy storylines, purient end-of-the-peer punchlines, and general run-of-the-mill misogyny barely registering on the Richter scale of national scandal. Nevertheless, according to the tabloid press, the UK as a whole seemed to be on the edge of a nervous breakdown on a weekly basis, constantly wrestling with its own moral indignation while a new immoral world order began to rise and head towards the future. Indeed, it was from out of this swirling socio-political climate that probably the most incendiary spins the teacher of them all stepped forward. Maggie Smith played the lead role in The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie in 1969 at the age of 34 and went on to win the Oscar for Best Actress. Her intricate and impressive portrayal as an ideal career woman bristling with intellect, articulation and confidence captivated not only her pupils but also her male colleagues. In turn, what surprised and excited the modern audience at the time was that she appeared to offer up a credible alternative to the somewhat mummified representations of lead women from the past, i.e. a genuine feminist role model who was ambitious and in control of her own destiny. Tragically, 1969 was still too early for such a character arc to reach fruition, however, when, in the final quarter of the film, it is revealed that Miss Brodie is, in truth, a self-centred arch-manipulator with fascist sympathies, an enemy of the people. It would thus take mainstream British cinema another 14 years before it was mature enough to finally put forward a progressive representation of a blue stocking which the public could unanimously support when, aged 33 years old, Julie Walters memorably stumbled through Michael Caine's door in educating Rita. Claire Mortimer's Spinsters, Widows and Chars, The Aging Woman in British Film, is a truly wonderful book, which delivers so much more than this review can articulate within the space and time allowed. In many ways, it can be understood as pure academia, in that it critically addresses a sorely neglected area of research. With such diligence and enthusiasm, the reader cannot help but become more aware of and interconnected with the history, society and culture which surrounds and flows through them. As a consequence, it is an invaluable contribution to not only feminist screen studies in particular and cinema studies in general, but to the study of Britain and Britishness as a whole. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. An independent screenwriter, director and producer based in Manchester in the UK, I enjoy promoting Northern Intellect. Northern Passions, and the Northern Accent. You can email me at bretts at com. visit my website at com, or search me out on social media as, surprise, surprise, Serious Feather. Cheers.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at Goddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.